Hey there, Sam Sanders here, popping in to let you know that this episode was recorded before the terrorist attacks in Paris late Friday night. It was a horrible event and one we're going to talk about here on the podcast in an episode soon. But for now, here's this episode. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a quick take on something really interesting that's been unfolding over the last week or so within the Republican Party. It's a storyline that's been building for some time now, and it was on the main stage last week at the Fox Business Network debate. That night featured a lot of exchanges like this one between Florida Senator Marco Rubio and Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. I know that Rand is a committed isolationist. I'm not. I believe the world is a stronger and a better place when the United States is the strongest military power in the world. Marco, Marco, how is it conservative? How is it conservative to add a trillion dollar expenditure for the federal government? We talked a bit about this in the podcast last Friday. And we've really been watching it since 2010 with the birth of the Tea Party movement. It's this evolving debate about what it means to be a conservative in today's Republican Party. So we're going to talk about that. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter at NPR. I'm Domenico Montanaro, editor on the Politics Desk. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. So Mara, there's this old line about the differences between Democrats and the GOP when it comes to choosing a nominee. Right. The Democrats fall Fall in love love and and the Republicans Republicans fall in line. line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but this election, it seems like the GOP just cannot do that. Well, there used to be a pretty simple definition of what it meant to be a Republican or a conservative. There was a three-legged stool, and the three legs of the GOP ideology were social issues, conservative on social issues, small government, which means fiscal responsibility, low taxes, small deficits, and a strong defense. And the party's having a pretty big debate about what's more important. What are those big debates going well, on? Well, right one now? of them was what you just heard. Rand Paul, who says we shouldn't pay for foreign involvements. We shouldn't put foreign involvements on our credit card. In other words, we shouldn't r- run up the deficit to pay for foreign wars. Marco Rubio says it's more important to be safe than it is to be fiscally responsible. So that's one debate. I would say on that one, um, since ISIS began beheading people, the hawks who want to put things on the credit card They've are doubled, winning. Yeah, they They've, they're winning. There was a moment when Rand Paul's libertarian small government, uh, he says, I want government to be so small I can barely see mm-hmm. it. Uh, they they had a moment, but that was pre-ISIS. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, part of the issue here, I mean, when you see Rand Paul and Marco Rubio going back and forth, as Mara pointed out, those are two very big parts of the stool, you know? I mean, national security and fiscal conservatism are two things that Republicans have been, you know, at a tug and pull on for a long time. And I would argue it goes further back than 2010. I mean, yeah. 1964 with Barry Goldwater thinking about what the Republican Party should be, 1980 with Ronald Reagan and you know bringing over conservative Democrats from the South. And that has been basically the scenario that's played out for a long time, just being reshaped one more time in 2010. Except the reason why Republicans can't fall in line the yeah. way they usually do. They're uh-huh. a hierarchical traditionalist party. The guy who lost last time, it's his turn, so they exactly. go for him. That's mm-hmm. not happening. There's a reason for that. What's the, the Republican reason? Party has been in the political wilderness for... Five out of six of the last presidential elections, they've lost the popular right. vote. When and you a party could... is shut out like that, normally they do a deep rethink of what they need to do to their brand to modernize. And you could, you could, and ar- that hasn't happened. And you could argue that they've been out of power in the White House for the past seven years, but because the George W. Bush presidency was one that conservatives really don't laud because of uh, the wars and because of fiscal issues, you have these two sides. The Tea Party certainly has no love for George W. Bush. It's almost like they've been out of power since 
Ronald Reagan because they don't well, even want to. That's exactly right. right. They're, they need to update Reaganomics, and they have been unable to. Although there are plenty of conservative intellectuals sitting in think tanks, some of them call themselves reformicons, saying we have to update our ideology. We have to have a message for the middle class. We have to deal with with the fact that the electorate is now younger and browner. But to me, what happens when a party fails to update their ideology? You get Donald Trump and Ben but Carson. Here's the thing. I mean, so, this is what yeah. happens when you haven't right. come to consensus about it's how the you birth, want to modernize. It's the birth of something brand new. Yeah. But didn't the party establishment come to a consensus? There was this big memo they had post-2012 election where they said, here's what we have to do to fix this, well, right? And so wasn't that, that like, memo, clearly established? No. That memo, which is sometimes called the autopsy report, which is a <laughs> well, wonderful name, um, <laughs> which was after the 2012 election. Every time a party loses, they commission a report and it's it's the What Just Happened to Us report. So what did they say they in get this to, one? Yeah. And they said a bunch of technical things about debates. Hasn't happened. Uh, primary oh, right. schedules. They but they made one and only one policy recommendation. And that was on immigration reform. And they said the Republican Party needs to embrace comprehensive immigration reform. And the word comprehensive is code for doing something about the 11 million people here yeah, in right. the United States illegally. If we don't do it, we will be seen as a party of fusty old white men and we won't be able to reach out to minorities. Now, that is what the establishment thought and you, in 2013. Yeah. But look, we're now in 2015 and they never were but, able to embrace but, but, it because the party didn't But there agree are a few candidates them. that are about that moderate stance. Yeah, but, so that, is, Jeff, but that, is completely, that is like completely blew up after the last debate, right? I mean, because you had you've had Donald Trump who inserted himself in this campaign with his anti-political correctness candidacy. And what you could even call some dog whistling. I mean, he... I don't think I don't they were whistles at all. Whistle. They were it's a, sirens. It's a bullhorn. But when you think about what Donald Trump has done. He inserted this issue in the can in the campaign where they were really delicately walking along that line. They were hoping some in the Republican establishment, most in the Republican establishment, that Jeb Bush would be the guy. Now this is why Marco yeah. Rubio and when we talk about post debate, how this has really blown up because when he talked to Steve Inskeep last week on NPR and had said that he's for a very long path to citizenship, okay. Uh, to I, legalization. I, well, he yeah. said citizenship oh, okay. in his interview with Steve. What is so the difference between? There is a big difference. Well, okay. So the difference between path to citizenship and path to legalization, a path to legalization would mean that you get to be in the country, you get to work, you get to go to school and you pay taxes, but you don't get to vote. Okay, so uh, if you had 11 million people in the country, that's mm. that's that's where some you people get, call that second class, and that's where you get advocates on uh, the left saying that that is a second class group of citizens. It would be unworkable, and I think many in the Republican Party understand that too. About half of Republicans believe that uh, there should be a path to citizenship, but it's about two thirds of the country that, in at large, that believe that there should be a path to citizenship. If you go to Iowa, it's only about a third of Republicans who believe that there should be a path to citizenship. You know, so, but what's really interesting about this debate about what it means to be a conservative, the question is, is it the Republican Party, the modern Republican Party, going to be a party that's welcoming to immigrants or not? There are a lot of Republicans, and Marco Rubio is among them, who believes that you don't have to have a path to citizenship to be welcoming to Hispanics. You need somebody on the ticket who either speaks Spanish or is Hispanic. You need a new tone. And you need a path to legalization, guest worker program, work permits, whatever we're calling it, because that is what Hispanics really care about. That's his theory. I mean, so, okay, so if there are all of these cleavages and all these divisions right now, who is in charge? 
Who figures this fight out? Who is a decider about which path the party will take? This sometimes parties figure this out before a presidential election. When the Democratic Party was shut out of the White House, basically from 1968 to 88, they did a deep rethink. And Bill Clinton formed something called the Democratic Leadership Council. He believed, along with other Southern Democratic governors, there used to be some, um, that the party I was had to say, move. what happened yeah. to the DLC? Yeah. What well, happened to but those the blue point, dogs? Well, but the point oh, is the he, felt, he mm-hmm. felt that the party had to move to the center, so they came up with a big agenda. He ran for president. He decided. Now, sometimes in this case, the Republican Party hasn't decided in advance of this nominating battle. The battle is going to decide. It's part of what's going on here. And we talked about this a bit earlier, but there's so many candidates in this race on the GOP side. How much of that in some weird way is was influenced by Barack Obama and his crazy rise as a young first term senator? So I think there's a there's a couple things here that that are interesting because one this is first of all an open presidential race so you're going to see this kind of mess you're going to see this kind of number With this of, many candidates this many you know it, it, look it, when you when you have an open seat it's much easier to win over not to mention the history that's on the republican side for this election because it's just doesn't happen very often that someone from uh, one party succeeds a two-term president from the same party. It's only happened once since World War II, and that was George H.W. Bush. So, you know, when you have that kind of history on your side and you have such animosity in the base toward the president that's in power, somebody feels like they are going to catch that lightning in a bottle and win. Now, I mean, the other part of this is Barack Obama. And I think that you when you see the rise of a Marco Rubio, oh yeah, a Ted Cruz, uh, exactly. uh, Rand Paul, who all won races in the Tea Party era and are freshman senators, they say, "Hey, why if not he did me?" It, you know, besides those three senators channeling Obama, even if just their path, I have been hearing some Obama-style rhetoric in the strangest of places. Uh, I was at Liberty University this week for a Ben Carson speech, and there was a portion of his speech that felt very Obama-esque. What's truly important is our unity. And we have a lot more that unites us than the things that divide us. And we must remember this is United States of America. Isn't that so Obama? Yeah, no blue states, no red states. We're the United States. What's that about? Well, you know, first of all, people don't like partisan rancor. They don't like gridlock. They like the idea of unity, of course. And most candidates like to think that they're the ones who can provide some harmony, work across the aisle. That's what people want. But Obama failed in that project. But that message got him to the White House. Yeah, that message got him to the White House. A winning tactic. And, and, And Ben Carson, and he is kind of uniquely by his personality suited to this because he's a calming presence, uh, is trying to do this. Will that work? I don't know. I don't know. In this Republican Party, I don't think they're in the mood for harmony. As a matter of fact, what we see in polls, which is so interesting, is a majority of Republicans say they'd rather have a candidate who sticks to principle instead of compromising to get things done, whereas more Democrats say they'd rather have a Mm -hmm. candidate who's willing to compromise in order to get things done. That's true. That said, Hillary Clinton has called Republicans the enemy, you know, and tried to walk that back a little bit. And you had Republicans at the undercard debate say that they couldn't even name somebody on the Democratic side that they would even like because you're in a primary. that's that's a that's a sad state of our politics, but unfortunately with polarization, that's where we're at. Yeah. And Carson, notwithstanding, I don't think this is a very kumbaya moment in American politics. That's true. So speaking of that, not being kumbaya, at some point we have a nominee for the GOP. 
how much of the current language and tone and rhetoric will they be able to leave aside and how much of that rhetoric lingers? Like this Trump rhetoric on immigration, how much of that sticks to the party? That is a really good question. There are many Republicans who think if the nominee is not Donald Trump, they can basically etch a sketch this chapter, this rhetorical yeah. chapter on immigration. And if it is someone like um, a Marco Rubio or a Jeb Bush who can appeal to Hispanics, then they'll be fine. I had one Republican consultant say to me as long as Donald Trump doesn't have a speaking role at the convention, we're fine. But if he does, we own I everything that comes out of his mouth. He, oh my goodness, he might be at the convention. Might, might, I might. Mean, yeah. Of oh, course he will. He's I earned the right to have it. That. Yeah, I mean it's sort of the oh, right of passage. Oh my yeah, God. I'm like popping my popcorn already. Yeah. I'm wow. And, and you know, well, but Trump, of, but I mean, Trump himself has had some pretty hot rhetoric, and you know, he had a campaign ad that's yeah. that's out that really sums up all of his kind of applause lines. Exactly. The fact is, I'm going to make the greatest trade deals we've ever made in our country, and I'm going to bring jobs and money back to the United States. I'll take care of our veterans and make our military so strong that nobody will mess with us. I'll secure our borders, and yes, we will have a wall. You can't have a country without borders. And I'll make sure that the Second Amendment and our religious liberties are protected. Obamacare is a total disaster. If this was a guy who did focus groups, you'd say, that was a focus group dad. But in a way, he's done a focus group of being able to go around he's the country. He's done a mind meld he's done with his the own, Republican right, exactly. electorate. He's figured yeah. it out. He uh, tests. He tests. Yeah. Well, like Donald Trump has also been somebody who, you know, hit Ben Carson pretty hard. Can we uh, talk about that for a second? Yeah. Uh, let's take a listen to Trump uh, last Thursday where he goes after Carson pretty hard on some of his background. I'm not saying it. He said he's got pathological disease. He actually said pathological temper, and then he defined it as disease. So he said he has pathological disease. No. And he goes on to if liken him to no child, to child molester? molesters because child molesters are, have disease can't that can't be cured. If you're a child molester, a sick puppy... You're a child molester. There's no cure for this. And he let the audience's imaginations yeah. run. And then he said, well, actually, there are two cures. Killing them is one. No, there's two. There's death and the other thing. And then, like, but then, you know, in the portion of these comments that he was making, he also said, he also was like, how are the Iowa voters so stupid to like this guy or right. something, right? Yeah, there's that. How stupid are the people of Iowa? How stupid are the people of the country to believe this crap? You know, we have been asking... After every one of his tirades, whoa, isn't this the tipping point? Uh -huh. Hasn't he gone too far? Mm -hmm. Insulting John McCain. He'll never survive that. Insulting Megyn Kelly. You know, and he has survived every one. However, insulting the voters of Iowa? The I wouldn't be surprised if this helps Carson. Only because Carson's story, it's a little bit like... I don't want to say it's like the Bible, but but people it's believe this in the story. Of redemption they and don't being want delivered. to know. They don't. People who support Ben Carson do not want to hear that every story he tells cannot be corroborated. They believe the basic story. Well, and also, this plot line yeah. of a troubled youth right. being delivered and redeemed yep. resonates with GOP voters all yep. the time. You look at George W. Bush. Used to be an alcoholic, and then he was redeemed, and like th like that's part of so many narratives. Of well, candidates. and and Ben Carson responded, yeah. uh, after Donald Trump made and those remarks, and used the word redeemed, and right? he 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 talked about this. If we play that, I'm hopeful that maybe his advisors will uh, help him to understand the word pathological, and uh, recognize that uh, that does not denote incurable. It's not the same. Uh, it simply is an adjective that describes something that is highly abnormal and uh, something that fortunately I've been able to uh, be delivered from for... I mean, that phrase, delivered from, 
That yeah, he knows what he's saying. Yep. With that. And Iowa is Ben Carson country. It's has the largest number of evangelical Republican voters in the early states. So okay, there's one guy in this whole combo that we have not talked about. Jeb Bush, where does he fall into all Boy, of this? Boy, Jeb Bush was the one that actually had thought about where the Republican Party needed to be yeah. in the modern era, even though, ironically, he's come off as a candidate from a bygone era exactly. and hasn't seemed to get with the kind of animus and anger and the, the whole emotional state of the Republican Party today. But he certainly had thought about why the Republican Party needs to be welcome to immigrants, why the Republican Party needs to be less pro-Wall Street and its tax policies. I mean, he actually well, had given this some and thought. And the thing is, though, what's his last name? Right. That's a big and problem. When for you him. think about but not just the problem of where the electorate, you know, what they see as far as what his brother did. It's a problem for him in the sense that I'm not sure the party is where the Bush family was. Right. You, you saw H.W. Bush. Not sure what's going on with the Republican Party currently. Very uh, upset about Donald Trump on the scene and can't imagine that Donald Trump would be somebody who's gaining the kind of momentum he has without the ability to understand it. You, you, it's very difficult to beat it. Well, I think we're there. That's all for this quick take. Not that quick. Sorry, not sorry. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter here at NPR. I'm Domenico Montanaro, editor on the Politics Desk. And I'm Mara Eliason, national political correspondent. We will see you next time here on the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs> 